0: Well, amen this morning. You may be seated. What a great, great song. Never gets old. Amazing grace never gets old. And uh, I know you feel the same way. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. Uh, Hosea chapter 11. Uh, We're just going to keep rolling right through. I do have good news this morning, though. Uh, We're at a shift in Hosea where we're turning back uh, to the love of God and his uh, mercy and grace upon Israel. Uh, So if you're there, I'm going to read, and then uh, we'll just kind of jump right in. Uh, I'll read the first four verses. We'll go just kind of go that way. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the bales and burned incense to carved images. It taught Ephraim to walk, I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as though who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and God, we're so thankful, uh, Lord, for your word. God, we're thankful for your love, uh, your love that God just uh, shows itself in so many ways. And Father, today, as we look through uh, chapter 11 of Hosea, God, I pray that we, uh, Lord, see your love, but also see ourselves. Uh, And God, how, because we are sinners uh, and deserve punishment, uh, you have chosen to love us, uh, and you proved that love to us at Calvary. So my prayer today is, Father, that if there's anybody in here who, uh, Lord, is yours, who has walked away, who is struggling, that God, today they would hear uh, the heart of a father, uh, Lord, that's calling them to come home. And God, today, if there's someone in here who is lost and don't know you as their personal Savior, that today be the day of salvation. uh, And God, that you would do a great and mighty work, uh, Lord, in their their lives. God, we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, This is titled The Dilemma of God, and here's kind of God's dilemma. Uh, is that in His divine love He wants to do everything possible for His children, and as a parent, and I know many in the room, uh, you understand uh, that 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 pull. Uh, but in His holy justice, He knows that He must discipline His obedient or disobedient children. And I love what the great Puritan Thomas Brooks says about this. He says, "God's corrections are instructions; His lashes are lessons." his scourges, our schoolmasters, his chastisement, our admonitions. Anything that God does in our lives is for ultimately our good, Uh, whether that be that he has to scourge us, uh, discipline us, whatever that is. And that's exactly what we see going on here in the book of Hosea. The first thing I want you to see, though, is a concerned father. Uh, 1 through 4, you kind of see the things that that God is saying he does. The first thing he says is he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. Now this resonates. We can all feel this. Uh, If you're in here today and you are a parent, you understand what it means to love that child um, so deeply. Uh, and, and, and man, it's amazing that, that once you find out that uh, your your wife is expecting, and me as a father, but once you find out there's a couple you're expecting, there's a love that begins to just grow and churn uh, within uh, the couple as they anticipate and wait uh, for their children to come. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, when you, when Israel was a child... And we know from firsthand experience he's talking about, but God's taking them all the way back to the Exodus. Uh, You remember in Exodus uh, 3, 7, and 8, this is what the Lord said. He said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I've come down to deliver them... Out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. That's what he says. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I what? I called my son. Deuteronomy seven. We've used this verse several times in this series, but seven and eight says this: The Lord did not set his love on you, speaking to the, the the Israel nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. He's saying you you really were not that great. Uh, There is nothing about you that that calls me uh, to love you, for you are the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and we could all say amen to that because it's his love for us. The Bible says we didn't love him, he first what? loves us. Uh, And he goes on, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. And it says he redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And in Malachi, there is these wonderful words where the Lord is declaring his love for them. And yet they respond very negatively. But God says simply, I have loved you. But what should we expect? Because God is love. Is not this the truth that we learn early on? If you were born in a Christian family, been raised around the church, there's a song that you learn early on. And it says, Jesus loves me. Everybody in here knows the song, Jesus loves me. And we learn that early on and we get it in our head Early in life, but we don't fully understand it many times in the heart. Often we have a hard time truly grasping or even accepting God's unlimited love for us. And it is crazy to think about. I don't know if it affects you the way it does me at times, but if I stop and ponder, just kind of sit down long enough and go, man, I, I, I can't believe that the God of the universe, the God who spoke something from nothing, has a deep, deep divine love for me. And I think many times we overlooked that, that the Creator loves us with this radical, unconditional, self-sacrificing love. God loved Israel. God still loves Israel. And God loves us as well. Why? Because that is who he is. So regardless of your circumstances and regardless of how you may feel or how the enemy may attack you, one thing that you can hold on to and you don't have to doubt is God loves you. And that's something we all need to hold on to. But the other thing is he called them. In verse 2, he says it is it well, at the end of 1, I called my son. And then it says, As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the bales and burned incense to carved images. This is where we really begin to see the heart of the Father. You can kind of see the struggle here because he said, listen, I called them. They're my children. I called them out of Egypt. I brought them into a land uh, that was so amazing and so promising to them, and yet there's another voice. It's not just the voice of God in our life. There's another voice, and that voice was coming to them. It was coming from from the Baals. It was coming from the false gods, the pagan gods, those idols that they spent so much time worshiping, and God, them love them so much. So God's calling to them. The bells are calling them. And not surprisingly, they listen to the wrong voice. Just rhetorical. How many times have you listened and went with the wrong voice in your life? Uh, Man, I can tell you that growing up, man, I had a dad that loved me and he would warn me. You know, I'd be like, Dad, I'm going to go hang out with this guy. He's like, I'm just telling you, you don't need to do that. And, and then he would say, you don't, you don't need to go there. You know, the thing in our house was <laughs> anything going on after a certain amount of time, there was no good in it anyway. But so often I went with my desires and my voice. And I just know the, the struggle oftentimes that my dad had. And I've had as a dad at times where you're like, you know, you're warning your children, but they're also listening to other voices and they go. Uh, So often we listen and follow the wrong voice. And that's what they were doing. We can all agree that we've done that at times, but they were taking it a step further. They were indulging in the worship of the Baals, uh, many different gods that they were worshiping. But then he goes on, he says, not only have I loved them, not only did I call them, I taught them. Notice what he says in verse 3, I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Uh, He says, man, and and this is a picture, it's an image of a father. Again, many images and and illustrations of of, of fathers today. Uh, You remember when your children are first learning to walk? And you bend over and you hold their arms up and you're trying to help them walk, trying to teach them, trying to help them get their balance. That's what he is using. This image is like, I... Was there in your infancy? I was there whenever you were learning how to to become or becoming uh, the children which I have called out. And God is saying, I was there. Uh, Think about it. It was God who was there when they walked out of Egypt. It was God who was there when they walked in the wilderness. It was God who was there when they walked across the Jordan. It was God who was there whenever they marched around Jericho. And it was God who was there when they walked into Jericho. He was there for them. was their father and he's saying you are my children he was there for all those milestones and again i can use personal reference to this i just remember growing up playing basketball traveling all over the place and my dad at the time worked a full-time job he pastored and he traveled singing but the one thing he never did was miss one of my ball games It doesn't matter if I was three hours away in South Mississippi. My dad would get off work and drive as fast as he could to get there to cheer me on. He was always there. And that's exactly what God is saying to them. I have been with you all the time. And man, what an amazing father. Uh, Not only did he love them, call them, and teach them, but he carried them. Verse 4, he says, I drew them with gentle cords with the bands of love. The imagery switches from a father now to like a farmer. And he says, I, I lifted them with gentle cords with the bands of love. It is God just reaching down and wrapping his arms around them, loving on them as a shepherd would a sheep. And he is not forcing them to follow him. He is not using his sovereignty nor his power. He is letting them know that it's by my love that I'm carrying you. And instead, just think about this. He entered into the world, our world, and he placed his ropes of love around us as he lifted us up out of sin into becoming part of his family. And then the next thing is he fed them. Notice at the end of four, he says, as I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck, talking about pulling and loosening the yoke of an ox, I stooped and I fed them. God in his love has always come down to man. He is always stooped because God knows we can never do enough to get to him. So out of his love, he provided them everything they needed. And regardless how they treated him, his love for them remained the same. So this is a concern, Father. And so how does this all play into our lives today? Well, the first few verses, uh, simply as I was studying this, takes my mind to Luke 15 when you think about the prodigal and the father. And what a picture. That's always been an amazing picture of God's love. And in this account, just a few things we see as a father that I want you to point out as you think about God being your father, and you think about us as as walking away and kind of going our own way. This is kind of the picture of what's going on is God is reminding Israel of how much he has loved them. When I think about Luke 15, I think about a father whose patience and kindness never runs out. When you think about the picture, when the, when the young man f- gets up and he, he's, he's come to his senses and he's headed home, the Bible says that when the father saw him, he went in and locked his door. He grabbed a limb and chased him back away. No, the Bible says that when he saw him, he ran to him, That is a picture of a father whose patience and kindness never runs out. Psalms one oh three seventeen says, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. When I think about this picture, and I debated on whether or not I was going to share this, but I, I am. I want to be transparent, and I hope you know that uh, before I was a pastor, I was a heathen and uh i've been labeled that so i just remember in my short period of true rebellion uh when i thought that i was going my own way i still couldn't my dad was still paying for my gas and bought my car i was still living under his house and eating his food but i was a man right And I remember coming home one night. We didn't have cell phones then. If we had, my dad would have probably tracked me down and, and you know, gave me a good talking to. But I remember coming home. We lived on Feathers Chapel Road. I remember coming home one night about, well, one morning about 3.30. My dad had to be up at 5 o'clock to go to work. And I, as soon as my lights hit our driveway, my dad was standing at the end of the driveway. And I was like, oh, boy. (laughs) Maybe I should just keep driving, but so I turned in and if you, if any of you in here know my mom and dad, they are wonderful people. But my mom, she was the disciplinary, the fiery one. Like she would smack you in a heartbeat. And if you watch this, mom, I love you. Thank you for hitting me many times. (laughs) My dad was one of those. It was like, he could just look at you and you would break your heart. I remember pulling in the driveway and my mom, she's yelling and screaming and she's mad at me. You're going to kill your dad. He's got to go to work, blah, blah, blah. And my dad looked at my mom and he said, just go in the house. And my dad took me by my face and he looked at me. This is all he said. He said, son, you are breaking my heart. And he turned around and he walked in the house. Guess what happened? That group of people I was running with, I never went again. I I was done. I was done because I had a dad that loved me and he was patient and he was kind. And when he had every reason to kick me out of the house and tell me he had done all he could do for me, you know what he did? He looked at me and he simply unveiled his heart toward me. And it changed my life. So a father whose patience and kindness never runs out but then a father who is approachable. Man, do you realize that God never has a bad day? We do. He doesn't. I mean, he's in heaven and he's in control of everything. And I want you to think about this, a father who is approachable. What did the boy say when he woke up out of the pig pen? He knew he could go home. He said, I will arise and go to my father's house. Why? Because he knew in all that he had done, his dad was still approachable. And Hebrews 4:16 says, "Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need." The prodigal knew he could go home. But then the father that we will never have to earn his love. Uh, the Bible says that he had compassion on his son, and he ran on him, and he fell and he kissed him. He didn't yell at him going, man, what were you thinking? You are a fool. I can't believe you wasted my money. You can never come home. No, the Bible says he ran, fell on his neck, and he kissed him. And Romans 5, 8 tells us the very same thing, that God demonstrates his love toward us. And then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So while we are still blowing it, while we are still not measuring up, he has chosen to love us. And then a father whose love will never we will never lose because what did the father say? Hey, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatty calf here and kill it and let us eat and be married. And when I read that, I think about Romans eight thirty-eight. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any created things should be able, what? To separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I am thankful today that we belong to a father whose love we will never lose and then a father who knows us intimately he says for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found it is so amazing to sit back long enough and ponder that we are known by him psalms 139 oh lord you have searched me and you know me you know my sitting down. You know my rising up. You understand my thought afar of off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Yet, I will just add to it you love me. So, that's a concern, Father. Second thing is a rebellious people. Look at 5 through 7. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrians shall be his king because they refuse to repent. And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding for me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. So the first thing they were doing is they were sacrificing the idols. Israel was consumed with idols, and over and over in Scripture we see this. What started in Egypt was just passed down from generation to generation. Even though God was their father, he was their savior, and he has brought them into this place, those tendencies, that human flesh, that nature was passed down from generation to generation, and they were consistently uh, worshiping and sacrificing to the Baals. I love what Martin Luther, the great reformer, said. Nothing is more dangerous than religious confidence in a fake God of our own imagining. They were putting all of their confidence in a God that was carved out in stone and wood instead of the one true God. Psalm 115, 4, 8 says this. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Not only do images misrepresent the nature of God, but they destroy the nature of man. They turn human beings into mindless, powerless clumps of unspiritual flesh. We become like those statues. The nothingness of idol turns human beings into nothingness. So the more we sacrifice, the more we worship things other than God, the more we become like those things. And we are no longer able to be used by God. But the other thing was, is they refused repentance. Look in verse 5. He shall not return to the land of Egypt... But the Assyrians shall be his king because why? They refuse to repent. And this is a shift from their history to their present situation. He's saying, man, I've done all of this for Israel. I've done all the things that I promised that I would do uh, for them. And yet today he's saying in this time they will not repent. And what Israel wanted is they wanted a treaties with, of all people, Egypt to protect them from Assyria. So the place that God brought them from hundreds of years earlier, they're wanting to sign a treaty to go back with those people because they were afraid of Assyria and they were worried. But you know what God said? God said, no. He said, they will not return back to the land of Egypt. He says, but the Assyrians shall be their king. Why? Simply because they refused to repent. And I know that y'all probably go, man, they sound like a broken record. But I want to tell you something. Unless America repents, who knows what God may allow to happen. And I believe that all through this series, he has called us to repent. Because over and over, time and time again through the scriptures, we see where God sends a prophet to the nation to repent. And so often, they refused. And if someone is going down the wrong road, they don't need motivation to speed up. They need the determination and the unction from the Holy Spirit to turn around. We don't need it to speed up. We need to turn around. And I love what A.W. Tozer says, Repentance isn't all, only sorrow for past sins. It is also a determination to now do the will of God as he has revealed it to us. And how does he reveal it to us? Through his word. Uh, the other thing is they reverted morally. Look in 6 and 7. And the sword shall slash into cities, devour his districts, consume them because they're their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. They reverted morally. And here's the thing. Backsliding is a word that growing up I heard a lot in preaching. We don't hear it much today. But it is in Scripture. It's right there. They are bent on backsliding. It's a truth that cannot be ignored. Uh, it could be said this way, a habit of turning away from God. The children of Israel would, would turn away from God, but then they would turn with these lofty names, and they would use all the big names of God, trying to impress him and trying to make him feel good. And God was just simply saying, I, I'm kind of sick of it. <laughs> just a paraphrase, I'm just tired of it. I, I don't want you to use lip service and your heart not be toward me. I don't want you to use the, the great name Jehovah or, or all of the Jehovah Jireh, El Shaddai, or Adonai. I don't pray those to me when you are running from me. And so God says they just will not listen. Billy Graham defined backsliding, I can't even talk, as those who never who have been near to God but have allowed sin to take them away from God. And I just remember growing up hearing an old preacher say this, if you're not moving toward Jesus, you're moving away from him. That's pretty simple. That <laughs> if we're not going forward with Jesus, then we are backsliding. Um, there is no middle ground. There is no stasis. There is no... Oh, I'm going to just kind of hang out here, God, and catch up with you later. If we are not moving forward, then we are backsliding, is what Scripture says. There is no drifting or coasting along. There's like, hey, I'm just going to kind of hang out here and do my thing, and I'll catch up. No, it's none of that. There's no foot on one side of Christianity and another foot planted in the world. That's what Elijah told, told him. In, in, in King, 1 Kings 18, right? He said, today, how long will you halt between two opinions? If God is your God, then let it be God. But if Baal is your God, then let it be Baal. And I am from Fayette County. You guys know that. I'm just going to give you all my simple illustration of this very easy to understand idea is that if you put one foot on one side of a barbed wire fence and one on the other, it's pretty obvious what will happen, right? There's no straddling the fence with God. That is called backsliding. When we backslide, we either choose to continue down the slippery slope or we humble ourselves with a broken and contrite heart before God. And then the last thing in this is they rejected worship. Notice what he says in 7. My people are bent on backsliding for me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt me. That's kind of a fearful thing. It's to think that that they are in a complete heart uh, condition of backsliding, yet they're constantly uh, saying they're worshiping God. Here he says, none exalt me. And I should say God deserves our worship. God deserves every time we come in here as a corporate body to be high and lifted up. There should be nobody any more high and lifted up on a Sunday morning or in our lives than God himself. Everything we do should be pointing directly at him being high and lifted up. He deserves our very best. What the enemy wants is the enemy wants us to worship everything and everyone but God because that causes separation. And understand this. The enemy understands that if you're saved in here today, that he, he, is, he doesn't have your soul. He doesn't. But I'm going to tell you what he can have. He can have your full attention. And what he can do is he can separate you from your relationship with the Lord. I didn't say break that relationship, separate it. The Bible says in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, God's hand is not too far that it has short that it can't reach. His ear is not too heavy that it can't hear. But your sin has separated you from your God. And that's exactly what was going on. And the reason the enemy wants to stifle worship, and I want everybody in here to listen to this, and he'll use any tool he can on a Sunday morning to stifle worship. He'll use complaints. He'll use subjective opinions Right, I don't know if y'all saw the meme. There's a meme of a pastor who's getting ready to preach. and He's got this calm look on his face. and Behind him is a guy running full speed going, Pastor, I got something I need to talk about. That's always a scary thing uh, in, in worship and in pastoring. It's like when somebody comes up to you and is like, I need to talk to you. It's like five minutes before you're going up to preach. Because you know it's going to be like something crazy about sausage or chairs are turned wrong or somebody didn't lock a door. It can wait. Worship is the number one most important thing that we can do on a Sunday morning. And we need to learn as God's people that if we got an issue to wait until worship is over. Call on Monday and come and scream all you want to. But man, the enemy wants to use any tool he can to hinder worship. Why Because the Bible says that when he's lifted up, he'll draw all men to him. And the enemy wants to hurt worship because he knows worship is what sets our hearts toward God. So the word of God can be preached and the Holy Spirit work. I'm just telling you today that we must exalt him above everything else. That is what we are here to do. He created us to worship him. Is so often he gets our leftovers. Our number one priority as believers is to worship God. And so often we look at what's left in the bag of our life and we toss it to him and go fetch it. That's not what we're called to do, and that's what they were doing. So how do we rebel? We do it by choosing our own way so often instead of God's way. We rebel by loving God. What God hates. First John. We rebel when we're stubbornly refusing to listen to God. And we rebel when outright rebellion is outright when we're just totally against the Lord. I love what Erwin Lutzer says in his book, The God's Devil. You can choose your sin, but you can't choose the consequences. We have choice to sin, but the consequences are already set. And we can't choose the consequences. Again, so much of this resonates because we know what it's like to rebel against our parents or be rebelled against as a parent. And we know what it feels like to have that your heart ripped out of your chest from a disobedient child. If you've ever experienced that, you know the pain, you know the sleepless nights, you know the hurt that comes with it, and yet so often we just look at God and we shake our fist at Him, and God's just going, you don't realize, but you're tearing out my heart. I love what C.S. Lewis says on rebellion. All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. That's why we rebel. And we are so guilty at times of being rebellious people. But I'm not going to leave you with that because we have a divine love. Look in verse 8. And man, this is, the re- this is the dilemma. This is the struggle. And you got to hear this in, in, in the voice of a father. How can I give you up, Ephraim? God understands like, man, I have to either, like this is either a love thing or this is a just thing. And he's looking, he's going, how can I do this? I love you dearly. I, I want to do what's best for you. So how can you see the dilemma of God here wrestling within himself? How can I hand you over Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I set you like Zeboam? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. And he says this, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. You know what he's saying? Adma and Zeboam were part of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's saying, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger on you like I did on them. Praise the Lord, because we all deserve it. He says, I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. So we have a divine love. It's unbreakable. Look in verse 8, how can I? Right? We come to the place where we're beginning to understand the depth of his love. Is it execution or is it salvation? Is it justice or is it love? And I love what I heard an old preacher say a long time ago, you can break God's heart, but you can't break his love. Man, we ought to be thankful today that we belong to a father who has an unbreakable love for his children. But then his love's unimaginable. Look in verse 9. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. Why? For I am God. Now some could say, hey, you know what? Why is he not going to destroy them? They've done all of these bad things. They deserve to be destroyed. It's not fair that it happened to Sodom and Gomorrah and he's not going to do it to them. And the question has to be this. Why didn't God destroy you? Or why hasn't God destroyed me? And it's simply because God's ways are not our ways. And if he chooses to love us, Instead of execute us, then praise God. But someone has to suffer, right? And his name was Jesus on our behalf. He's the one who took on that. So here God has made his decision. And I believe one of the greatest pictures, and I just want to read this to you, one of the greatest pictures of this kind of story in the New Testament is John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world, we know this, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18, here's here's the dilemma. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Here's the thing. The core issue is that every single person in this room We'll stand before God. You'll stand before God either condemned of your sin or forgiven of your sin. And don't miss this. All of us, all of us are condemned until we believe. All of us need to understand that we have rebelled and we have chosen our way instead of God's way. We have rejected God's way. We have walked away from God according to Scripture And the thing is, is that is part of who we are. But I love this. Uh, And this is not just when you think about standing before God, it's not to the person to the left or right of you. I love in preaching sometimes after a message, you'll walk out and that guy, somebody will say, man, that person need to hear that. It's like, which person? You? Me? I don't know. The person over here, the person over there, what happened back there, the one on live stream. You really should hear it. No, it's for us. Because each one of us will stand before God on our own. The person to the left or right, the front or back, or the person that's not even here, they're not going to stand in front of God on your behalf. We're going to stand And God's going to, I mean, it's simple. It's like either we have been saved and we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and our sins are covered by his blood and we are washed clean and we are now part of the children or we stand condemned, rebels against God who will feel the full wrath of God on judgment day. But God's love is unimaginable because we deserve condemnation. We deserve to be punished. We deserve death. And instead, God says, listen, if you'll just believe on my son who came and gave his life for you and was resurrected, you do not have to be condemned. And the word condemned in the Greek is crisis. And I think the biggest crisis in humankind, in any person's life, is when you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, you are in a crisis. Because if you take your last breath in that crisis, you will die and go to hell. And there will never be another opportunity for you to get right. But God's love is unimaginable. And the reason it is, is because in his nature, he's infinitely good, he's infinitely great, and he's infinitely holy, and he's infinitely wonderful. So if God is all those things, infinitely good, infinitely great, infinitely holy, infinitely wonderful, infinitely worthy, then If we sin against him, then we have infinitely insulted him, infinitely rebelled against him, infinitely rejected him, and we deserve infinite punishment. That's what makes his love so unimaginable is that we deserve punishment and God chose love. And then the last thing is his love, it's audacious. God knows who he's talking about here. Listen to what he says in verse 10. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, then his sons shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. This is talking about a day that'll come. Here's the thing. God knows who he's talking about. He knows they're going to continue lying He knows they're going to continue deceiving, but however he's going, man, they'll come. And this is why I use the word audacious. It's because God, on our behalf, God knows us. Psalm 139 makes it very plain. Romans 3 indicts us. We know that we're all sinners that have fallen short of the glory of God and that we're running away from God. But here's the reason I say God's love is audacious. And please hear this. God delivered his son. There was, never has been such a dark, tragic work performed by humankind than the day Jesus died. God saw his son led like a lamb to the slaughter. God saw the wood laid upon his back and the spikes driven in his hand. God watched the whole dark, dreadful business of Golgotha's hill. So often we let God off the hook. Remember what Romans says, that God did not spare his son, but through him gives us all things freely. Isaiah 53.10 said it was the Lord's will to crush him. God was not a casual observer that day. He was actually the one that had gave permission to do this. He was the one. It's the picture of Isaiah, I mean of Genesis 22. God was very active in what was going on on the cross. It was His Son becoming a substitute for the wrath, and the punishment, and the penalty that is due every single one of us. That's why I say it's audacious, the fact that God would do this to His Son on our behalf. So in closing today, this is what I want you to understand. You're in a dilemma as well. One day we're going to understand how marvelous the grace of God is. Stay with me just a minute. In heaven, we will realize how serious sin really is, but we'll just realize it from a completely different perspective. We will realize the depth of our sin but we will know it by the magnitude of the grace that God stooped down to where we are to pull us to where we are now. We'll realize how glorious grace really is. And for the first time, we'll realize how deep our sin was and how great grace really is. We have no clue. I have no clue the depth of God's grace for me, but one day I will. One day I'll realize just how deep His love and grace for me really is. But then in His mercy... In here today, if you're lost, in order to go to hell, you will have to run blindfolded with ears deafening so that you cannot see nor hear the epic sacrifice of all of human history. You have to run with your eyes closed and your ears stopped not to hear and see Jesus on the cross taking God's wrath for your sin. You'll have to run eyes covered, ears plugged, in order to hear him say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In those great and final words, it is finished. And here's the truth for all of us. Every single person in this room, child, teenager, man, woman, is headed either toward everlasting joy and peace in heaven with the Lord, or you are... Headed toward an everlasting suffering in a place called hell. It's just the bottom line. There is no in-between. There are no other ways. There are no other options. Either you're headed toward everlasting joy or everlasting suffering. And every life here based on authority, God's word is either headed to heaven or hell. So God's dilemma was... Out of my love, I send my son Jesus to die for people who many don't even love me or will never love me. God's dilemma is sending his son to suffer for people who are his enemies. So do, 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 I, do I send my son in, in love? And we know that that was his plan from the foundations of the world. Or do I just execute them, wipe them out, and I'll still be God? So God chose to send Jesus. God chose to give Jesus. God chose to bruise and to crush and to ultimately sacrifice his son so that you and I could be saved. And we can shout to that. But here's our dilemma. Where will you place your trust this morning? Will it be in your Savior or will it be in yourself? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him, the Bible says, will not perish but have everlasting life. And that leaves every single person here with the choice. Will I trust in the Savior or will I trust in myself? God has proven his love just like he did for Israel. And just like you're going to see over the next few chapters, man, this thing is just going to unfold more and more. And by chapter 14, there should be revival in this place. I don't know if Warren believes in the Jericho march, but it'd be a good time to do it. Because God's going to pour out and show his love. And what I love is we're not living in those days. We're living in the days that he's poured out his love ultimately. And that is through his son Jesus so that people at Warren Community Church and in this community and in the world can know him as their personal Savior. So today, your dilemma is simple. It's either everlasting joy in the presence of Jesus in a place called heaven, or it's everlasting suffering in a place called hell. What will you do? Let's pray. Father, we come to you today. And God, I just ask you to to be so tender and speak to our hearts this morning. I love what your word says that your kindness is what draws us to repentance. God, you're not going to come through the crowd this morning slapping people upside the head or grabbing them. God, you're simply going to show your love for them. And God, if there's somebody in here today who is your child who has walked away, who has backslidden, God, I pray that today they would acknowledge that, come to you, Lord, and repent. And God, if there's somebody in here today who doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, God, that the Holy Spirit, Lord, would come to them as we see in John chapter 6 and draw them. And God, that they would respond in faith. And God, that they today would put their trust in you. God, whatever it may be, whatever it may look like, We love you and we praise you. And so this morning all across the room, I just want you to sit with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And the song that they're gonna sing, I just want you to just meditate on the words of this song. Just meditate on God's goodness and God's love. Just take time to thank him and say, God, thank you that you God, you didn't didn't throw me away. God, you called me. You came to where I was. And if you need to come down today, I'll be right here. I'd love to pray with you. If you need to come down and just pray, if you need to come down today and put your faith and trust in Jesus as he calls you for salvation, I would love to do that. But I just want you just today, man, just meditate on God's goodness of this song. Your dilemma today, your choice, what will you do? Go ahead.